your brain is a fantastic built-in bullshit detector. So if you're, if you're doing affirmations, if you're looking in the mirror and going, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, your brain's going, shut the fuck up, man, you're not a millionaire. And it's totally demotivating. It, it really hurts the system. Gratitude, you are giving thanks for things that are already real. They already happened. They don't trip the brain's bullshit detector. I am so happy and grateful I woke up this morning and my limbs worked, right? That's real. We take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit of information that gets through. When you have a regular gratitude practice, that ratio will tip to five to one or six to one. So you start taking in more novel information, which can be the seeds of creativity or more non-threatening things. It literally changes how the brain filters information and it calms us down as a result. Today's guest is Stephen Kotler. Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author, he's an award-winning journalist, and he's the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's also one of the world's leading experts on human performance, and he's the co-founder of a dog sanctuary. He's just a really good guy. I met Stephen Kotler over a decade ago. I happen to be freelance writing. I just read his book about surfing called West of Jesus, and I was able to call him up from Skype in Costa Rica where I was living at the time, and Stephen gave me great advice. He basically said if I wanted to make it as a writer, I had to work harder than everyone else. Stephen works really hard himself, but he's also figured out a way to work smart. He's done this by studying some of the top performers in science, art, sports, and business, and he's put together a book about all of the things he's learned. It's called The Art of Impossible. So on this episode, we talk about the new book and specifically how to have more joy in your life by achieving your own version of impossible, which is a pretty amazing thing. This episode is packed with science and tips on things like how to have more flow, having hard, high goals, and so much more. He has some great tips at the very end, so listen all the way through. Before we begin, special thanks to amazing sponsors like Viore Clothing and Organifi Superfoods, who share some amazing deals for our listeners in this episode. This podcast is brought to you by Organifi. Organifi is a San Diego-founded company I love. I know the people who work there, and they've become huge around the country. They have a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high-quality ingredients and all with less than three grams of sugar. One of my favorite things they make is something called green juice. It has moringa, spirulina, beets, turmeric, mint, wheatgrass, and more. And it tastes delicious, but the best part is it helps curb sugar cravings, and it also helps boost energy and immunity, and it tastes delicious. You can blend it in the morning like a tea, like a matcha tea with just some almond milk. I also love their gold powder. It's like a yummy turmeric tea. Often my husband steals it and eats it straight out of the can. It's literally that good. They also have really high quality protein powders, all vegan, all organic. They add vitamin joy to my life. You can now go to Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Shelby and enter the code Shelby for 15% off your entire order. That's Organifi.com slash Shelby Enter code SHELBY, S-H-E-L-B-Y, for 15% off your order. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore is a San Diego company I also love who makes the comfiest joggers anywhere. 
They also make really cute leggings, sports bras, board shorts for men and women, hoodies, tops, and tees. It's pretty much what all of us in Southern California wear on the daily to check the surf, get coffee, run in and work in. And what I love about them is the crew who founded and run the company, they're all about making an investment in happiness, which means you can feel good about the things you buy from them and how they're made and how they contribute to a healthier planet. So for our listeners, Viore is offering 20% off your first purchase. You can get some of the most comfortable, versatile clothing on the planet at vioriclothing.com slash Shelby. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Shelby. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 in free returns. Just go to vioriclothing.com slash Shelby and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Vitamin Joy. Stephen Kotler, welcome to Vitamin Joy. It's good to be with you. All the way in New Mexico? No. Is that where you're at? South, South Lake Tahoe. Moved. Oh, you're in Tahoe? So have you been snowboarding? Uh, I've been skiing like mad. I've had 31 days this season. Oh my skiing God, the biggest, a... Yeah, I've skied the biggest lines of my life this season. That's amazing. I didn't know you were in Tahoe these days. Well done. So I read your book, The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. I've read a lot of your books, starting with West of Jesus. And we've talked a bunch. So I thought it was really interesting. You wrote in your book that you have a recipe you follow to achieve your specific impossible. One, write books that have a deep impact. Two, advance the science and training of flow. And three, make the world a better place for animals. How did you get to such specific core values? And the reason why I'm asking you this is because like that, I'm sure, helps with decision fatigue. Like all of us have a lot of decisions and things thrown at us all day long. I've talked a lot about the art of saying no on this podcast a lot. So how did you come up with your core values and how does that help you better achieve the impossible? Well, that's a long, <laughs> that's a hard question. Quickly. A, there's, in the a, yeah, there's, 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 uh, there's a lot in there. So um, the process for how to do that is what, in a sense, opens up the art of impossible, the book, which is the passion recipe. How do you turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose, right? And there's a bunch of different reasons for doing that. Those are all powerful intrinsic motivators. So you get a lot of energy for free, a lot of focus for free when the when those things are they're on board. They also tend to drive us into flow. So a lot of those those things also work as flow triggers, and flow is kind of optimal performance and accessible to everybody because. Flow is kind of a foundational, it's foundational human biology. Everybody can get into flow. So those things work as flow triggers. But how did I come to them? One of the things I, I you know, besides doing those processes, I also looked at my life and asked questions like, well, what have I gone very far out of my way to do? What do I continue to do that you couldn't stop me from doing? And those are, right, I have been an animal geek and I have gone extremely far out of my way to work with animals and to do environmental work and to hang out with scientists, hanging out with animals. Um, as a journalist, I would work for two or three years to take a trip to Madagascar to hang out with Patricia Wright, who was working with lemurs, something along those lines. Um, so it was just, I was putting a lot of energy into it. And I was like, okay, you know, this is taking a lot of energy. Some of it started there and 
also with exactly what you were saying, with looking at my life and going, wow, there are tons of opportunities flooding in. There's tons of cool stuff coming in. I need a first filter. And so purpose, which is essentially what those three things are, tends to be, uh, first of all, in the science of goal setting, it's best to have a bunch of different tiers of goals started with mission level goals for your life, these high tier goals for a bunch of different reasons. One, we're goal-directed systems, humans are. So we like to move in the direction of our goals and we'll naturally go in that way. So having those goals is very useful, tends to filter perception. We see more opportunities that relate to those goals along the way. But there are, as you pointed out, there are first filter, right? If stuff comes my way and it doesn't align with those three mission statements or the handful of other things I do in the world, um, it's an instant no. So one of the first things you said is look at where your curiosity and passion kind of align because an intrinsic motivator, like for me, I remember when I used to have a crush on a guy, this may be a bad example. I would get up at 5 a.m. and surf blacks. I would never do that on my own, but I had like, I don't know, maybe I wanted to get laid. Maybe I want to make out with them, but that was an intrinsic motivator. I will do anything. I will work harder. That's the, I mean, it is very hard to get where we want to go, wherever it is that within you want to go. It's just hard to do. And what you see with, with foundational peak performers is we have five major intrinsic motivators and they're designed to work in a sequence and they're designed to come on board that way. Um, they start with curiosity, which is sort of the basic foundational intrinsic motivator. And as you pointed out, what do we get from curiosity? We get focus for free, right? You would show up, you'd go to the beach, you'd get work for free. Curiosity is designed biologically to be built into passion. What we mean by passion is essentially the intersection of multiple curiosities, leading to a handful of short wins. Once we have passion, if we can connect that to a cause greater than ourselves, you have purpose. Once the system has a purpose, right, it demands autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. And once you have that, the system demands mastery, which is the skills to pursue that purpose well. And if you can get all five pointed in the same direction, you get a tremendous amount of energy and focus for free. And you get farther, faster with a lot less fuss as a result. So where do you start? So where you start is with motivation, which is where the book starts, right? Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And that biology is a limited set of tools. And the tools, there's a series of motivational tools, there's a series of learning tools, there's a series of creativity tools, there's a series of flow tools. And you start with curiosity. I literally, uh, in The Art of Impossible, start with people making a list of 25 things they're curious about. And this whole process, rather than spending lots of time on it here, um, if you go to thepassionrecipe.com, we took this entire process, we turned it into an interactive workbook that we could give to anybody because so many people had these questions. So thepassionrecipe.com will get you the whole system for how to do this and it's written out uh, at the front of Art Impossible. So Stephen, you talk a lot about hard high goals in your book. First off, what's a hard high goal? And if there's a difference that you've seen in your research between women and men and how we achieve them. So I said a minute ago that there are multiple tiers of goal setting that, and the human beings are goal directed systems. Um, you want to put it differently. We don't really live in a reality. We live in a world that is mostly shaped by our fears and our goals. Perception is limited. We take in a ton of information for a second, but it gets filtered down to something the brain can process. And most of what gets through is our fears and our goals. And in fact, they tend to be binary. What I mean by that is if you go into most mammals, they can either feel like anxiety 
or excitement. And it's neither or. Humans can feel both at once, but it's sort of a switch. So one way to kind of lower anxiety is through goal setting, one thing that happens. But the system is designed to have mission level goals for your life. And then underneath that, you need high heart goals. High heart goals, this is a term that was coined by John Locke and Gary Latham, who are sort of known as the godfathers of goal setting theory. And they really refer to like one to five year goals. So if you've got a mission statement for my life, one of them is to write books that have a deep impact, right? High heart goals would be like one to five year projects that would feed into this mission level goal. This could be going to get a degree in journalism or creative writing, getting a job on a magazine, writing a book on surfing, write a book, writing a book on cooking, take your pick, right? They feed into that and below that, we need what are known as clear goals. These are daily to-do lists that feed into our high heart goals and feed into our mission level goals. Higher goals are really cool though. Um, what Latham and Locke discovered is that simply by setting a high hard goal, you get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. That's crazy. That means if an eight hour day is your baseline, you get two free hours of work done simply by having the right goal set. That's, it's an amazing boost in motivation. So there's a lot of really good reasons to set high hard goals. So that was question A. The second question is, are there differences between men and women in how they achieve high heart goals? And the answer is yes, maybe. And here's what I mean. There are a lot of individual personality differences that dictate how you approach peak performance. Where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale, right? What are your risk tolerances like? Um, what is your openness to experience? These are there are differences in, in how men and women score on those things, but there's really a lot of individual differences. We try to work one level down. There's a saying we have at the Flow Research Collective, which is personality doesn't scale, biology scales. And what we mean by that is very often peak performance, somebody figures out what works for them and tries to train it, teach it to other people. And it's often a disaster. And it's because things like, where are you on the introversion to extroversion scale or openness to experience, things that will fundamentally change how I would train you as a person, change from person to person, and they're set up by genetic factors and early childhood experience. So we like to go one level down to the kind of the mechanistic neurobiology level that is shared by everybody. But I should explain what I mean by share. When I say that, I mean, talked earlier about how flow is the state of consciousness that allows us to perform at our peak. All humans, male and female, are hardwired to get into flow. At the Flow Research Collective, we have a giant research project going on right now to try to determine are there male and female differences in flow and in how people get into flow. What I can tell you is if you want more flow in your life, flow states have triggers and which triggers you're going to reach for versus I'm going to reach for, very, very different. Right? There are probably some male-female differences, but the individual differences are huge and they, there's not, they're not constant. So the triggers that are gonna work for you in your teenage years and your early 20s could shift over time and they could be different ones in your 30s and 40s. So it's not just male-female, it's where are you in your life and your development. Whole bunch of questions sort of factor in. We try to go one level down. So a lot of the stuff that's in Art Impossible is taken one level below personality and one level below, hopefully, major male-female differences. Now, Got it. I can't say that's 100% because there's, there's so many questions here and the tools for really looking at these things, male-female differences in the brain, they're new. 
and we're still, a lot of people are still trying to find their way in it, let alone start to ask really hard questions about sex differences. Because when you ask sex different questions about peak performance stuff, you have to start factoring out any other variables that could impact your research. And that um, has been very tricky. Not saying yeah. we're not doing it, we're poking at it, we're trying really hard. Um, and we've got a working group of, I think, like 32 people who are actually working on it right now. So I guess a reason why I asked you is you spent a lot of time with Laird Hamilton and I've spent a lot of time with Gabby Reese and they're totally different in how they approach goals and, but they're not, they're, they're a little bit the same, but I was just wondering if you have like any anecdotal, um, you know, you've hung out with Gretchen Blyler versus Jeremy Jones, uh, lots of, lots of buddies of mine. So I haven't, um, other than the only thing I can think about is, I know a lot of women pro athletes who have used the fact that some man somewhere along the way said no woman could do this, no it, right as motivation. That is a you know in terms of like the little chip on people's shoulders and how they utilize that. Men may have a different chip than women in that particular one. I think both sexes utilize it the same. I really haven't seen it, which isn't to say that men and women don't approach problem solving differently, but I see much more individual differences than male female differences. Yeah. So I want to go back into flow and, and these hard high goals because you talked about these triggers and maybe you can talk a little bit about some of these triggers. I'm really curious if in your research you've studied, you know, humor and how humor can fit into either flow or achieving a hard high goal. So flow states can only arise when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now. So that's what all these flow triggers do. They drive attention to the present moment. They do this, we think, one of three ways. By either driving dopamine and or norepinephrine into our system or by lowering cognitive load. Dopamine and norepinephrine are performance enhancing chemicals. They drive focus. They do a lot of other things in the brain. We're going to come back to that in a second. Lowering cognitive load, that's all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. And if I lower cognitive load, I liberate a little extra energy that your brain can repurpose for paying attention to the present moment. So an example, riding a wave, you're only thinking about riding the wave. You're not really thinking about sharks and anything else. You're just going straight down the line. Well, in riding a wave, what I would say is that the wave produces novelty because no two waves are the same. There's unpredictability because waves are unpredictable living creatures in a sense. Um, there's complexity. Every wave is different in how you're going to react and respond to it. Uh, and there's risk if the surf is big enough. Um, all of these things drive dopamine into our system. So surfing as an activity is packed with flow triggers, packed with things that drive dopamine into our system, a little bit of norepinephrine as well. And that will serve to drive flow. Um, if you creatively interpret the wave, that will also, those little insight connections when you say, oh, look, it forms a nice little ramp there. I can throw an air off that, right? That sort of what I call fast geometry. That's, those are moments of insight that also produces dopamine and drives focus. So surfing is an activity that's packed with flow triggers, which is why it tends to produce the state so much. You asked about humor though, and here's the cool thing. When we laugh, so when we are surprised, is when we laugh, right? Humor is all about surprise. Surprise is uncertainty in the brain. So we laugh, that produces dopamine, and dopamine can 
partially drive us towards flow. So I wouldn't say that humor alone can push us towards flow because there's a big difference between just a dopamine reaction and moving into flow. A bunch of other things have to happen in the brain, but I believe um, it certainly helps. Also, the most important of flow triggers is the challenge skills balance. The, the what? The challenge skills balance. Flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds your skill set. So you want to stretch but not snap. Another way of saying this, too much anxiety blocks flow. Too much boredom blocks flow, right? There's not enough stimulus here, I'm not paying attention, right? Too much anxiety blocks flow. In between is this sweet spot. So our system is very, very sensitive to this anxiety. Why do you see so many action adventure sport athletes cracking jokes before they're about to do something gnarly? It's because they're lowering anxiety levels trying to stay in that sweet spot and calm down. So you see a lot of that humor and I think there's a lot of connection there. And I think there's also a ton more work to be done. We've been trying to get the Flow Research Collective, we've been trying to unsuccessfully figure out how to do some work with comics and flow because the act of comedy itself, this is a flow art, right? Like you have to be in the zone to be good at it and stand up comics because they practice routines over and over and over are a really good research group for us. And so we've been trying to solve that one to really go deeper into it. We haven't done it yet, mostly because COVID got in the way and we haven't been able to resume a lot of our live experiments anywhere, but it's definitely something we want to look at more. I'm fascinated with that topic. So happy to support and, and help when you do. Where does nature, so humor is a big one for me, but getting outside into nature as often as possible, also really important. And how does that fit into flow goals and everything else? Because I, I know you talked about it in your book, especially what going outside and looking at the horizon does for you. And I'd love for you to talk about that. So um, I should back up and put it into a little bit of context, like when to use nature. And there seem to be two points. One, flow states have cycles. There's a four-stage cycle. So nobody can live in flow. It's not a perpetual state. And it's this four-stage cycle. It starts with a struggle phase. This is almost the opposite of flow, where you're almost frustrated by design. And that is followed by a release phase, where you, you struggle to, to learn a new skill, to to do whatever it is that you're trying to do. And then the release phase, you take mind off the problem. And there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that one of the best ways to do that is to go for a long walk in nature. Low-grade physical activity is what works best. So you can build model airplanes or things like that, but gardening works very well. Long walks in nature work very well. Einstein famously used to row a rowboat or sail sailboat into the middle of Lake Geneva to do this to take his mind off the problem at hand. Unfortunately, Einstein was a shitty sailor and couldn't swim. So he was rescued all the time out of the middle of Lake Geneva, but he wouldn't give it up because it was so useful. Second of all, if we move it off flow for a second, we know that I just talked a little bit about how anxiety blocks flow. Anxiety blocks all aspects of peak performance. We know that a 20 minute walk in the woods outperforms most of the uh, SSRIs on the market, most of the antidepressants in the market. So certainly for calming down and lowering anxiety, a walk in nature is incredibly useful. We also recommend that people have an active recovery protocol. Flow is a very energetically expensive state to produce. On the back end of a flow state, there's a recovery period and passive recovery is television and beer. And it's, that's actually, takes us in the wrong direction. Active recovery is restorative yoga, 
um, mindfulness and breath work, a long walk in nature, foam rolling, infrared saunas, Epsom salt baths, etc. So long walk in the woods is great for an active recovery. And finally is what you brought up, creativity, especially if you're going after high hard goals. One of the things about high hard goals is we don't always know how to get there, right? So creativity, even if you say, I'm the least creative person in the world, I'm not interested in creativity, I don't care. If you're interested in goals and achievement, you care because you have to steer, right? That's the whole point of high hard goals is they're hard to get to. There's no clear distance between where you are and where you're going and creativity, creative problem solving is how you steer. So there is a portion of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, that helps us find links between, like far flung links between ideas. So the fuel for creativity is always novel information. And the farther flung the connection between the incoming information and an older idea, the more creative that is. And it turns out that the more anxiety in your system, the more logical and linear your brain wants to be. The extreme example is fight or flight, right? Your brain doesn't want you to experiment to find crazy solutions. No, there's a real problem in front of you. It wants the logical and linear. So being in a good mood is one of the ways to amplify creativity. Another way to do that is when we look out of the corners of our eyes, this is Dr. Andrew Huberman's work at Stanford, our peripheral vision, especially if we're looking at wide horizons like exist in nature, activates the parasympathetic nervous system. This is the rest and relax. Fight or flight is the other one. That's the sympathetic nervous system. Parasympathetic is rest and relax. So simply by looking at wide horizons out of our peripheral vision, we can calm down. You said this is Dr. Huberman's work. I just literally yeah. studied him last night. That's so interesting. We got up early and went outside for, you know, a little bit within the first hour of waking. And I started looking out at the horizon because I listened to that. And you also said, you know, nature is packed with flow triggers. Like I've heard you say on another podcast, we've evolved in nature, not in boxes to look at other boxes. Well, novelty, complexity, unpredictability, risk. These are all flow triggers. These all come sort of baked into nature. Um, often when we're in nature, we have embodied experiences, right? We're moving through nature using our bodies. And when multiple senses are engaged in any activity, that's another flow trigger that drives attention to the present moment. There may, uh, there may be deeper, kind of more foundational connections with things with nature, with how the eyes work and things like that, that we just don't know yet. Even more flow triggers than we've discovered, but nature's packed with flow triggers. I want to talk about gratitude because it's a pretty big theme on this podcast. Like how does gratitude help with overall peak performance? So positive psychology has spent about 30 years looking at just peak performance questions, right? Like, and what they found among other things is that you need a certain amount of energy to perform at your best to generate flow and be a peak performer and you need a certain amount of kind of calmness, right? You can't have enough anxiety in the system. So on the, on the anxiety side of this, how do you calm down? There's three things that positive psychology has lit upon as sort of the best treatments for anxiety. Uh, the first is gratitude and a five minute gratitude practice lists write down three things that you're grateful for and turn one into a paragraph. Or I use one where I write down 10 things I'm grateful for and I write down each one three times and I make sure the most important thing is you've got to feel the gratitude in your body, that the somatic address of the gratitude. And um, so we do a tremendous amount of work with Dr. Glenn Fox. He's the world's leading expert on gratitude. He's a neuroscientist at USC. And um, 
we have done studies with Glenn and found that uh, people with regular gratitude practice uh, tend to have more flow in their lives. So we should talk about why gratitude works and why affirmations don't work. So your brain is a fantastic built-in bullshit detector. So if you're, <laughs> if you're doing affirmations, if you're looking in the mirror and going, I am a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, I'm a millionaire, your brain's going, shut the fuck up, man. You're not a millionaire. And it's totally demotivating. It, it really hurts the system. Gratitude, you are giving thanks for things that are already real. They already happened. They don't trip the brain's bullshit detector. I am so happy and grateful I woke up this morning and my limbs worked, right? That's real. That actually happened as a result. I said that your brain takes in your fears and your goals. Your fears dominate. We take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit of information that gets through. When you have a regular gratitude practice, there's work out of uh, Berkeley that shows that ratio will tip to five to one or six to one. So you start taking in more novel information, which can be the seeds of creativity or more non-threatening things. It literally changes how the brain filters information and it calms us down as a result. Second option, 11 minutes of mindfulness, breath work a day. You wanna calm down, gratitude is great. Mindfulness will also do the same job. So 11 to 20 minutes of mindfulness will do the same job. Not into gratitude, not into mindfulness, fine. 20 to 40 minutes worth of exercise will also do the same job. So what we tell people is on any given day, pick one. You don't need to do all three every day. Five minute gratitude practice, 11 minute mindfulness practice or respiration breathwork practice or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. When you're exercising for anxiety and for cognitive function, you want to exercise till it's quiet upstairs or till your lungs open. Um, both are signs that nitric oxide has been released into your system and flush stress hormones out of your system. So under normal circumstances, we recommend one a day in times of crisis when maybe there's a disease in the world that people are staying home from and a little more nervous than normal. Um, maybe two right now, maybe two a day, right? So that's how I tend to think about gratitude. Really, really great kind of baseline anxiety practice. I use gratitude and exercise way more often than I use mindfulness. I find for me, it's much more effective. I, like in, in terms of lowering anxiety, I get for personally, I get better results out of gratitude and exercise than I do get out of mindfulness, which doesn't change the fact that I've meditated for 20 some years. I'm just still not impressed with the results. Not that impressed with the results. Interesting. Interesting. I do a five minute um, meditation practice that also has gratitude in it. And then I go for a run and check the surf every morning. And that if I don't do that, I don't have as productive as a day. Let's put it that way. So, For sure. so your schedule, like an ideal schedule, if you could have to achieve peak performance, things you want to do and incorporate into your life. You mentioned gratitude. You mentioned humor. So the answer there um, is a little too long to give you, but let me frame it for you because it's useful for people to understand. Um, if you're interested in peak performance, there's a bunch of onboarding practices. The passion recipe, right? You have to get your intrinsic motivators pointed in the same direction. You have to set up three levels of goal setting. There's a handful of other things you have to sort of do to get into the game. At the end of the art and possible, when it's all said and done, there are about six things you have to do every day and about seven things you have to do every week. Some of the things are very, very quick. Like you'd need five minutes for a gratitude practice or 11 minutes for a mindfulness practice. Some of the things you have to do, for example, this is obvious, but complete concentration is a flow trigger. 
one of the most important, right? Flow follows focus. Can't show up unless all our attention is in the here and now. Complete concentration is a flow trigger. What the research shows is that 90 minute periods of complete concentration work best for maximizing flow um, because the brain is designed to focus biologically for about 90 minute periods. This is, we have REM cycles, they last about 90 minutes, right? It's a sleep cycle where we dream. We also have 90 minute focus waking cycles opposite side of the same coin. So uh, this is also, by the way, Montessori education, which is a very high flow educational environment, has long been shown to be that, is built around 90 to 120 minute periods of uninterrupted concentration. So we tell people, start your day, if you can, or at least start your work session with 90 to 120 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. Spend about five minutes practicing distraction management. I like to end my day with a five minute distraction management practice to prepare my office for the morning's 90 minute uninterrupted concentration, meaning I turn anything off that could grab my attention. Why, why argue with Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or Clubhouse or whatever else, messages, email, phone, all of it gets turned off the night before so that when I walk into my office, it's just me and my writing because that's the most important thing I'm gonna do. So if you can, you wanna start your day with this 90 to 20 minute block of uninterrupted concentration and spend it on your hardest task. So this is whatever is your, gonna be the biggest win for your day, right? If you do this, maybe nothing else, you still sort of won your day. That's what to focus on during that period. It sounds silly by the way, but this is one of the single biggest flow boosters we've ever seen. And worth putting something in perspective because a lot of people hear this and go, I don't have 90 minutes. What the hell are you talking, right? And let's talk about what you actually get in flow. Um, flow massively amplifies motivation, grit, accelerates learning, amplifies empathy, environmental awareness, collaboration, cooperation, productivity, and motivation. Sometimes 500% above baseline and creativity. These are huge, huge amplifications. So sounds like you're giving up 90 minutes and you're giving up a lot of time, but the productivity spikes so much. For example, McKinsey Business Consulting did a study of top executives in flow, found top executives report being 500% more productive in flow. 500% more productive means you can go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, you take Tuesday through Friday off, and you get as much done as everybody else. So by blocking 90 minutes for uninterrupted concentration, if you can drop into flow, you're gonna get so much work done in that period, you're gonna end up getting time back which is something that's really important here. Some of the things you have to do are not things you have to do. You need 90 minutes. You can do whatever the hell you want inside of those 90 minutes, but those are a couple other things you can do. I love it. Steven, this is really interesting. Um, I'm curious, do you, you know, I, I'm, I'm an athlete. I've had coaches my whole life and I'm working on a couple of projects. A lot of the things I'm doing, I don't have a coach for. Do you have a coach or a mentor? Well, I've had a lot of, uh, mentors over over the years. Um, it's been a little difficult for me because nobody has my career. I get it. That's why I called you. Right, which is a real, <laughs> which has been an issue. So I can, I can find, yeah, I can, I, I can find people who have can help with bits and pieces of it. Um, and so you know, skiing is my kind of primary flow activity, and I will try to be on the mountain a lot of days over the year, and the person I'm primarily skiing with is a former pro who's better than me, not by a lot, but better than me. And so it's kind of like having a coach. And since I've been skiing with him the past two or three years, for sure, I progressed way more than I ever have. So on certain things, I, you know, I've, I've got 
mentors like that in, in science. I've had tons of mentors over the years, um, people who have really, really, really gone far out of their way to help me that way. So that's been great. And, you know, I watch Peter, who's my writing partner, do a lot of stuff. And, you know, I've known Peter for a very long time. So, you know, he's a guy whose face appeared on a stamp and he's on, you know, the 100 most influential people of the 20th century, you know, those kinds of lists. But I've known him for 25 years and he's just a guy to me. And so watching what Peter does has been very helpful for me. I sort of think, well, if Peter does it, did it, I can probably do it, um, which may be totally wrong, but more than coaches or mentors, uh, it's the people I surround myself with. I look for all the people with tremendous character. There's a lot of ethics in, in how I live and how I make my decisions and in the people I surround myself with. And I, so I really look for a lot of character and I look for uh, the uh, Yiddish term would be chutzpah. <laughs> Hey, I'm a fellow chutzpah Jew, so I love it. Um, you know, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Like, surround yourself with people who make you a better person. You're kind of a living example. Like, you have an untraditional career. It's had twists and turns, and you've found people in little places that are, like, awesome at what they do, and it's made you better at what you do. So that's awesome advice. So Vitamin Joy was created because I wanted to give people doses of joy and health and happiness in an era that was, you know, that was easy because right now life is hard. So it had to be as easy as taking a vitamin, you know, and it just makes you feel a little bit better. So where are you getting your vitamin joy these days? Something that's easy, just makes you feel better. And what is your vitamin joy challenge for listeners that you can give them? Yeah. I mean, we sort of covered it. You know what I mean? I like literally like when I get stressed out between calls, I, you know, I live at the foothill of a mountain and I take my dog outside and we go walk up the mountain. Like, what do I do for quick? I go for a hike outside with my dogs really fast. Um, awesome. And if I can't go for a hike outside with my dogs, I get on the floor and I roll around and play with my dogs. Literally five minutes of uh, touching a dog, petting an animal, releases massive amounts of oxytocin in both you and the animal. So really good for you, really good for the animal. And it's a reward chemically based state shifting. That's easy. Or, I mean, the other thing is books. I mean, I love that. Books, greatest thing in the universe. So the cool thing is in your book, you say you could write, read a blog, you could read an article, or you could read a book. And a book has like X times more information of years packed into a little bit. So I love that. Awesome. And if I were to give listeners like one thing they can do to bring more vitamin joy, I mean, there's so much. Yeah. Another website for people, flowblocker.com. Okay. So people want more flow in their life. We built a diagnostic. There are six major things that stand between most of us and more flow. And we built just a giant diagnostic. Anybody can go to flowblocker.com and we'll diagnose what's between them and, you know, more flow. And then it will give you a multi-step action plan to take for more flow. So it's totally free for anybody. That's a, that's a quick solution. I'm trying to give you stuff that will work. And pet your dog. Yeah. And I love and it. And pet your dog. Go for pet a walk. Pet your dog. Pet someone else's dog. Go for a walk in nature. And uh, read a some, book. Read a book. Maybe The Art of Impossible. And some gratitude. I love this. Steven, when are we going surfing? Yeah, soon. Soon. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Your vitamin joy challenge this week 
pet your dog to release oxytocin, read a book, even Kotler's book. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you get books. And go to flowblocker.com to get your free download. Also, get outside in nature to reduce anxiety and instigate creativity. Be like Einstein. Go for a 20-minute walk in nature. Go for a sail if you can. And look out at the periphery of your eyes at a landscape setting to calm your body so you can think more creatively and strategically. Lastly, go ahead and challenge yourself to some hard high goals if you can and do what you can to get in the flow state and achieve your impossible. I've been doing a lot of things on this podcast. I'd love to hear from you. I'm mostly on Instagram at Shelby Stanger. You can also get me on my website, shelbystanger.com. But one of the things I've been sharing and doing that I learned from Stephen's book is chunking my work in 90 minute increments. That stat that the McKinsey consultants discovered that you could chunk in 90 minutes and if you could find those 90 minutes chunks, you can basically work Monday and take off the rest of the week. That really hit home. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Special thanks to Stephen Kotler for doing this interview and to my amazing friend, Karen Rinaldi for publishing Stephen's book. Vitamin Joy podcast is edited by the amazing Jennifer McCord. It's created by me, Shelby Stanger, and it's supported by sponsors like Viore Clothing and Organifi and, of course, my own wallet. Go to vioreclothing.com forward slash Shelby or Organifi.com slash Shelby for amazing deals with these awesome brands. You can also find the deals in our show notes, shelbystanger.com slash vitamin joy and all the tips Stephen Kotler shared just in the episode show notes. Wherever you are, I hope you're having a wonderful day. Don't forget to spread that vitamin joy to other people.